0: A 32-year-old woman folds her arms over her abdomen as she lays in the fetal position in bed. Her abdominal and pelvic pain feels unbearable, and she has been struggling with this pain for over 10 years. When does this get better, she asks herself. Every month is the same excruciating pain for almost two weeks out of the month. Is this ever going to go away? Am I going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life? Welcome to the Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpikar and Dr. Alobi Patel. We are the Female Pain Docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to season three of the Hurt Podcast. So today we're going to talk about endometriosis. So according to the World Health Organization, endometriosis affects roughly 10%, so 190 million women of reproductive age globally, which is a huge percent of the population. So what is endometriosis? Endometriosis is essentially tissue that looks similar to the tissue in the uterus, but instead is growing outside of the uterus. So this tissue can grow in a lot of places like the ovaries, bowel, bladder, and can even spread to less common places like the lungs. So with endometriosis, the endometrial-like tissue acts like endometrial tissue would. So it becomes thick, it can break down, and it can bleed with each menstrual cycle. But the problem is that in those other areas, there isn't a way for that tissue to exit the body. So it becomes trapped, causing severe pain and possibly infertility. So we know this is a pretty big topic, and it's one that we haven't covered before, despite it being such a big reason for public pain in women. But Dr. P and I wanted to be able to wait to get it just right. And so for that reason, we're making the topic of endometriosis into a two part episode. And to really be able to do justice to this topic, we've invited special guests to join us both this week and next. So today we have a very special guest, Dr. Kathy Wong, board-certified OB-GYN and director of her hospital's endometriosis program. Dr. Wong went to SUNY Downstate for medical school, followed by Cornell for her OB-GYN residency, and finally received her fellowship in minimally invasive surgery from Stanford. Her two main areas of interest in her practice are endometriosis and fertility-preserving surgery. She runs a yearly endometriosis course for physicians and lectures nationally and internationally on robotic surgery, fertility-preserving surgical options, and endometriosis. So we're honored to have her with us today to share her insights. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So most of the time, for you as an OB-GYN, you know, you probably be the first line when it comes to a patient with pelvic pain. So for you, when you see a patient with pelvic pain, You know, what kind of things do you want to know? And since we're talking about endometriosis, what sort of signs or symptoms kind of point you towards that?
1: I would say that I always ask the patients if they're experiencing any pain, which we should always ask at every single visit. I would ask them about the quality of their pain and the frequency of their pain and timing of their pain, whether or not correlates with their menstrual cycle. I also ask whether or not the pain correlates with bowel movement nation, I ask them whether or not they have pain with intercourse, and we actually also. This is something that I've been really working on getting more physicians to do a more thorough job of asking whether the patient have any history of sexual trauma when they present with pelvic pain. I think that's a really important thing to elicit from the patient, and it would be very uncomfortable for the patient to actually bring it up herself. So there's a lot of, we should really give them the space to let them tell us a story because otherwise it's could be difficult for them to actually volunteer that story if we don't actually ask that question.
0: No, and I agree. And so, you know, even amongst pain physicians, that's really important to know about any kind of trauma because even in my field, like most pain physicians don't ask that question and don't really treat pelvic pain. And that would be really difficult to one for a patient to talk about, but also you know any kind of potential intervention that you want to do, you would want to know if they had a history of this that could manifest when in their future when they're about to undergo like any type of surgery. So with that, before you would consider what the next treatment steps might be, what kind of um, workup do you do? What kind of imaging do you order, if any? Yeah, we
1: definitely do a very thorough history. I think that is really important so that we can actually get a sense of if the patient has endometriosis or not, A one, would increase or decrease our suspicion for endometriosis. I think it's really important to pay attention to when the patient mentions that they're in pain ever. I think. A lot of women who are little girls, when they're growing up, were told that having painful periods is normal. And that includes my myself. I've been told that many years and I had lots of pain growing up and I just thought it was normal, but, but it really isn't. So I think that is a disservice to young girls growing up to let them know that it's normal. And so we always take pain very seriously. And when we ask about pain, whether or not it involves the bowel movement that gives us a clinical suspicion of this patient having endometriosis that's on the bowel or the colon. And if there's pain with urination, then that gives us a higher suspicion that there may be bladder involvement. And I think, again, the intercourse is a really, whether or not they have pain with intercourse, I think it's a really important question, because also, you know, helps to decide or determine their sexual wellness. And that's could be a really important piece. I shouldn't say could be. It is a really important piece of, of a person's health. I think we need to address the emotional health, their physical health, and that needs to include their sexual health. And then if I have a high suspicion that the patient has endometriosis, then the next step we do is a MRI, actually. So when I joined NYU in 2014, I've been working with our radiology department to develop a endometriosis protocol. So now at this point, we're at 80% accurate for diagnosing endometriosis, including, including the location of the lesion. So the reason it is important is, one, we want to know whether the patient has endometriosis, what is the suspicion level to whether or not we want to intervene surgically, is that the right? route to intervene? And is that the right intervention for the patient? And also, if we are going to do surgery, we need to know the extent of the disease so that we can actually get the right team members in the room to do surgery. I really would rather know as much as possible before the surgery so we can properly properly plan for it rather than finding out in the middle of surgery oh, no, I need a bowel surgeon. Oh, perhaps they include the bladder and I didn't actually get urologists involved. So as much as we can know beforehand, the better we are to prepare for the patient's procedure.
0: You know, there are so many treatment options with endometriosis, and which is important because it's kind of, in a lot of ways, a lifelong, or maybe not lifelong, but a significant portion of your life disease that has to be managed. Do you, you know, when you do your protocol and you're looking for endometriosis, um, I guess for you, like how often do you proceed to surgery versus like trying other options first?
1: And what does that depend on? We usually actually recommend medical treatment first. Uh, we don't go to surgical intervention first. I think my population, my patient population is slightly more complex. Often people are already referring com- uh, difficult endometriosis cases to me. So it's not really, um, I would say, excuse toward the, the stage three and stage four endometriosis patients. But we always talk about a multidisciplinary approach. So we often talk to the patient about their fertility because that's often a concern of theirs. We send the patient to acupuncture and a traditional Chinese medicine doc to go over. What are the things that they can do in terms of diet um, diet and exercise and lifestyle changes that they can make? And sometimes it cross over to IBS. So then we will actually send them to gastroenterologists. Certainly, our first step is not surgery. We always try to do the less invasive interventions first and only when it doesn't help, will we proceed with surgery.
0: I'm glad you mentioned
1: lifestyle.
0: In terms of, you know, and obviously like you're not necessarily treating that, but you're collaborating with other providers who do recommend that. Are there certain, as far as you've seen, are
1: there certain lifestyle changes that have been particularly helpful for endometriosis? I don't think anything uh, different different from, you know, what we typically see as a healthy lifestyle. And so, less processed food, you know, more exercise, getting vitamin D. There's been some studies that show that a high level, or at least a normal level, of vitamin D seems to correlate with less pain and some uh, relief of the endometriosis symptoms. And so, again, that is something that's very low risk, right? And even though I don't do any of that myself, because really I'm only good at cutting out the disease tissue. I stay in my lane. So I refer our patients to Lara Rosenthal. So she is an acupuncturist, but she also goes over nutrition, lifestyle changes that would be beneficial for the patient. So for me, I feel like, I I mean, the the things that I tell my patients is just less processed food, you know, get your exercise in, do your stone two exercises, get your aerobics up. But then really beyond that, I'm like, you gotta see Lara. Lara is the best. I personally see her every single Friday. <laughs> and, and she's basically my therapist slash acupuncturist. That's that's great. I mean, I, no, I, I agree with you when you said
0: when you said just to stay in your own lane. I never I patient asked me all these questions, like, should I have show sure surgeries? Should I not? I'm like, well, from what I've from what I've heard or seen, but really you should talk to the person that's going to do this because they would have much more information than I would. And actually, um, Alpi and I—we um, actually both got boarded in lifestyle medicine so that we could learn how to actually manage um, endometriosis and other chronic pain conditions with lifestyle changes. So we actually got a board certification in it, which we just got about two months ago. It took our boards. So started to branch out a little, but didn't want to do it without having the proper tools. That sounds awesome. Um, but I mean, I you know I agree with that. Like I'm a huge proponent of not sort of, um, any provider sort of overstepping their, their knowledge base. Yeah. Uh, unless they get the proper education for it, but anyway, <laughs> moving back in <laughs> to what you do more of. Yeah. So speaking of staying year your own lane, so do you, do you, um, prescribe like hormonal therapy for endometriosis and what are your thoughts on it? And, and can you kind of go over some of the different options?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge with hormonal therapy is that it's going to prevent you from getting pregnant. And that's kind of a big caveat for a lot of patients who are seeking treatment for endometriosis. So oftentimes, if it's pre-surgery or a patient's not doing surgery, I would just give birth control pills. And obviously, you can give continuous birth control pills so that the patient can either avoid or minimize the number of periods they have. Or if it's after surgery and the patient's not actively seeking fertility what I actually often recommend a marina IUD because, I mean, i would just be honest, I'm a terrible pill taker. I cannot remember to take a pill on a daily basis at the same time to save my life. So for me, I think it's just really easy. And, you know, insertion of IUD is extremely uncomfortable if, you, if you're awake. So I often just offer that or as part of the surgery, if we're proceeding with surgery. Because I think one is localized hormone, so there's less side effects. And two, then you really take the pill compliance out of the equation completely, and the patient will benefit from it. And it's completely reversible, right? So it's good for five years. If in two years or even in six months, you decide, you know what? I want to get pregnant. Removal is super easy. So for me, that's my preference. The other stuff will often send the patients into menopause, such as Lupron, and I'm just, I just never give it. That's just how my experience in my practice. It, when I was in fellowship, I did give it because that's my fellowship director, um, and you know he wanted to give it, and I didn't have decision making um, powers. But I, since I've been in practice myself, I've actually never given Lupron. I just think women don't tolerate that well.
0: So it really kind of depends on fertility versus versus not. For the patients that might be kind of seeking um, or, or might be thinking of pregnancy, what options
1: are there? That's actually a really hard question. The patients who are seeking pregnancy obviously cannot be on hormonal suppression. So we're just waiting for someone to come up with a therapy that is not hormonal, a medical option that does not depend on the hormone. But a lot of times we actually ask the patient what is their fertility plan. And then we may send the patient to a fertility specialist to discuss whether ache freezing or IVF before the surgery, if they're thinking about surgery, or should it be timed after the surgery. So we don't really have a, you know, plan For every so, our plans for the patients all individualized. It really depends on what she wants, right? If her number one goal is just to achieve pregnancy, then I would just say go ahead and do IVF because once you get pregnant, endometriosis will subside because it's not active during pregnancy. But if the patient also has significant amount of pain and their primary goal is pain relief, we would go for surgery first. If their goal is pain relief and fertility, we often just work with our fertility specialists to see what is the best plan for this specific patient. And really oftentimes would depend on their ovarian reserve. What is the quality? How old they are? um, All of that. What is this life situation? Are they ready to have children? Do they even want to have children? So we really figure out what is the primary goal of the patient and then we tailor our treatment plan according to that.
0: I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean even for even for us, pregnancy limits a lot of pain options as well. yeah in terms of medication. Really, it's mostly lifestyle at that point, it's pretty much lifestyle factors that you can modify um, and very minimal medications you can take overall. So it's with you there. there. really there really isn't much option in general. I feel like when women are uh, tr- either like actually trying to get pregnant or are pregnant, um, because no one wants to test anything on a pregnant patient, which which you know makes sense. Yeah, but it is a, it is a kind of a major gap in medicine overall.
1: Yeah, I think that people are just so careful with pregnancy and sometimes overly cautious that it's actually um, restrictive, right? So when you're pregnant, you just have like only ten percent of options. <laughs>
0: If if that and everything is a discussion of like, just know that we have no idea whether something bad can happen with this medication. For example, right, but uh, it may. So think about it, and that's kind of what we have to tell every patient: we have no idea. We don't have any studies because no one wants to study it.
1: So. Yes, because no one wants to study pregnant patients. It's a really they count as a vulnerable population. Like, uh,
0: but getting back to surgery, so obviously you are a surgeon. So in terms of surgery, can you kind of go through? Some of the different like types of techniques that you utilize and what that sort of depends on in terms of the patient's disease and also their fertility
1: versus age. Yeah, but we we actually always go for fertility preserving options if that's a, if that's feasible. I think even times when patients come in and just say like I want everything out, and I still just go through it with them because I would never do that for example, a hysterectomy or removal of uterus and removal of ovaries as a first, first step in treatment. I would never do that, even if the patient's coming in asking for it. I think oftentimes patients are under duress and under a lot of pain when they make that request. So uh, the surgery, surgical interventions are, the two techniques are ablation versus excision. And I would say that we really only do excision because ablation doesn't really actually get rid of the endometriosis lesions because endometriosis is sometimes is like reverse iceberg. So you need to actually get to the bottom of the lesion. And when you ablate, you're just cutting the superficial and burning the superficial part of the lesion. And then you actually do not remove the whole lesion. So that's when the recurrence is much, much higher. And with excision therapy, then you're taking out the entire endometriosis lesion. And we see that recurrence is much, much lower. I also have heard a lot about hysterectomy as a treatment of endometriosis. And I just want to be very clear. It's an extra uterine disease, meaning it, it's not in the uterus. So I get very frustrated when people are saying that that is the answer. Taking out the uterus when the condition is, by definition, extra uterine does not make a whole lot of sense to me. So I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there about the right treatment option, especially surgical intervention. Anyway, I just needed to say that
0: that makes me like we're so happy that you just said that, actually, because that frustrates me to no end every time I see a patient. And they're considering a hysterectomy. And I have to effectively say like, this is this is not, I don't recommend this. I know I'm not a surgeon, but I don't think you should do this. And it's so frustrating because I also read a statistic that um, maybe this is changing. Hopefully, this is changing now with less of this happening. Mm-hmm. But I read a statistic, uh, I think last year, that 12% of hysterectomies um, were done for pelvic pain likely due to endometriosis. And, and it was just reading that you're like, but, but why? why? The whole point
1: that <laughs> I mean, I definitely think it's happening less, but it's still happening way more than you should. And if it's adenomyosis, if it's endometriosis that has invaded the uterus, I think that's a valid option, right? If you have other conditions, if you also have fibroids, that's also causing bleeding and, and pain, totally an option that we can discuss, but if you have just extra uterine disease and you're asking for hysterectomy because you heard some celebrity had a hysterectomy and that treated her pain, th- that's just not the right option necessarily for you. So I, I again, I just I was so frustrated when I keep hearing about that, and I'm like, no. That's not the right choice. That's not the right choice for everyone. It may be the right choice for some people, but it certainly isn't the right choice for everyone. And we always, always would try to do a less invasive surgical intervention first because I can always go back and take out the uterus, but I cannot go back and put it back in you. If you change your mind later and if it didn't help, I cannot actually put a uterus back. Right, right.
0: Absolutely. And and I think that's a big part of it too, is all the misinformation. Because you will see so much on social media, you'll see so much, uh, so much in, in like inflammatory articles or some celebrity article, like you said, where they had that, but you don't know what their condition was. You don't know whether they had a whole lot of tissue adenomyosis. You don't you don't know if they had that in the uterus. You just all you hear is endometriosis. They had a hysterectomy. That's my solution too. And it's so individualized, yeah. Because endometriosis is everywhere. Like it's each person has it in different places,
1: and so. You can't base your treatment on anyone else's. I think it's just, it's dangerous, right? And as a surgeon, I would just say that surgery is not the only option. We always want to pull out other levers first. What are the less invasive ways that we can treat this condition so that we can help you? And, you know, the sexual trauma piece I, I just think it's super important. Like we recently did a research study. We're trying to tally the the data right now, but we're asking OBGYNs, how often are they actually asking their patients about if they had any history of sexual trauma? Because that is such an important thing that we're not addressing. And I really do think the body really stores the trauma in a very different way that we're, again, as a surgeon, I don't know how to address that. I cannot. Excise your emotional scar. I can't do that. I can only excise your physical scar. And if I only address the physical scar and not make any room for the emotional scar that you experienced in your life, then I cannot actually address your pain. It might temporarily get better. It can, and it may be partially better. But until we address all of it, you will not get permanent relief. And I think that's just a really important thing that we don't talk about enough. I think in Western medicine, especially as a surgeon who uses a robot to do surgery, I mean, as high tech as it gets, who uses an MRI to map lesions. (laughs) I basically, (laughs) I basically optimize technology, but um, I also know what I don't know. I know that I don't know the emotional component. So I really lean on my partner's all my healthcare partners to help me with that part, and I again, I just want to make sure that we are addressing the patient as a whole human and not just, you know, someone with endo that I'm cutting out. Yeah,
0: I feel like with every consult that I see for pelvic pain, um, it's actually the only the only um, type of pain where even my consult time for that consult is longer than and like it's especially. For it to be longer yeah. than others because it is so complicated and it does recruit so many organ systems and also your brain. Like what's well, one of the organ systems? It recruits. And so and I always start off by, you know, saying that there's not going to be any one fix. It's there's not any one thing that is going to take this away. It's not like there's gonna be one medication or one surgery and you're gonna be better, you're gonna be fine, because you probably had this for like 20 years. And there is, at this point, it has already, you've had brain signals have been rewired, emotional, there's an emotional component, there's stress, there's so much other stuff that's not going to be addressed with only one therapy. So you're going to have to engage in like seven different therapies to actually manage this.
1: True. I mean, even the diagnosis itself can be a trauma, right? And I, I so, you know, one thing I I haven't addressed is probably for PT, and we definitely send to up help for PT folks all the time. But I think even the diagnosis itself is a trauma. And then, and when women are in pain, I think there is this, maybe that's what we were taught when we were little and it's ingrained in us. Somehow we did something wrong that we blame ourselves for being in pain. And then if you lay on top infertility, then you are really starting to have some real bad shame messages, right? It's like, I must've done something wrong and the universe is punishing me by, making me be in pain all the time, making me not being fertile. I'm not unable to have a baby and I cannot um, function like a normal human, even though there is no such thing as normal human. And then that just becomes a vicious cycle, right? You're already in pain. You do not need to go into this shame message, which actually only exacerbates your pain. And that's why I mean, like, again, I... I'm only a small portion of this puzzle. I can only cut out your physical scar from endometriosis. There's even other things such as the inflammation it causes. That's why we see there's, you know, this um, crossover between IBS and endometriosis because it happens so much together. Anyway, we're nowhere near knowing exactly what to do with a condition. That's why I actually love to treat women with endometriosis. To me, it's like every patient actually comes in differently and we get to tailor a treatment plan for her depending on what she is most concerned about in that moment. And there's still so much we don't know. So I feel like the field still has ways to go. Absolutely.
0: When you were talking about pelvic floor physical therapy, I was thinking about the fact that you, because you were talking about trauma too. And I've had patients day before that they were you know told by whoever to like go to pelvic floor physical therapy with no warning of what that would entail and they were never asked about any trauma and so you can't send someone to something like pelvic floor physical therapy because it's not normal physical therapy or quote-unquote normal physical therapy in the sense of like your back you know it's invasive it is and if someone has physical trauma or you repressed trauma that they, you know, didn't address with you. And then you didn't tell them about anything about what that, what this therapy entails and send them there. It's they, I've had a patient come back and say that it felt, um, Violate. it felt like assault. Yeah. You know? And I was like, Oh my. And like, um, the patient said that she never wanted to go. Cause when I, when I broached that as a topic, I was like, have you ever done pelvic floor physical therapy? And she said, I went to one session. It felt like, uh, like I was being assaulted and I never went back. And I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so things like that that are just sort of skipped over a lot in medicine. We just don't we don't really dig in too deep sometimes. Yeah, I, I you know
1: we talked a lot about internally because me and my research coordinator have been talking about this sexual trauma piece because we're both so really feel like this is an important topic. And I think it's not because we don't want to know of the patients. Have had sexual trauma is just that we are so uncomfortable because we don't know what to do with that. And, you know, and and I've gone through years of therapy myself. And I I was thinking that if the patient is brave enough to share something so vulnerable with me, I should at least be brave enough to make space to hear her out. As a healthcare provider, I think our reflex is trying to figure out, okay, I now must need to do something to help your pain. Mm -hmm. And and then you feel like I I think many of us think like, oh n- now what do I do with this information? I think a lot of times they just want to be heard. Yes. So I saw it's not like you need to make the sexual trauma better in that moment. Right. They just want to be heard and know that it, you know, this is not a shameful message. And by us shying away from that conversation or shying away about asking about pain, not even, you know, sexual trauma, which is obviously very traumatic. But even if we don't ask and make space to ask about their pain, then I think that brings even more shame to them. And as a person who has a lot of pain and bleeding with my own period, and I wish someone would just, you know, there are times I'm like, I just need to whip out my uterus. Um, There are definitely moments like that. And I feel a lot of shame. And that doesn't even make sense to me. Like as a... GYN surgeon, I know exactly what's going on in my body. I know I didn't cause it, but I can tell you when my period comes, I still feel deeply ashamed of what I'm going through as if I somehow caused it myself. And I hope that by me saying it, it makes it more okay for other people to share it too. I really
0: appreciate you telling that story. Like I I gone through similar um, situations and I feel like especially when you're you know certain ethnic cultures I'm Indian it's shameful to talk about these things um, they're not ever you don't really bring up stuff like that um, it's considered you know it's considered quote-unquote dirty like it's kind of like a dirty topic like you don't you don't bring up those kinds of things those are like, you don't you don't bring those up um I would see women, you know, like hide their pads and tampons. You don't put them out anywhere. Like no one should ever know that you're on your period. And why not? Like, why, why is that so shameful? 50% of the population has it. What's so, What's the big deal? <laughs> and that would be growing up. That would be the case for me, for like all other Indian women that I knew. And it was the same thing where I had horrible periods growing up. Um, all And then honestly, for me, they got better. Once I went on birth control, which didn't even happen until I was in my like mid twenties, because I felt ashamed to have to be on a medication to control the pain, Um, and also just the idea of birth control was just is so taboo a lot of times in Indian culture because it it you know it implies that you're doing unsavory things, you know. (laughs) It's kind of like, oh, why are you on birth control? And so, yeah. I so I didn't even look into that until I was like in my, actually, um, until I was starting residency. Yeah. Because at that point, it had been so long of horrible periods. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through residency um, with, with painful
1: periods. How am I going to do it? <laughs> this is like exactly my story. And the Chinese culture is very much the same. So I didn't start on the pills until I was, I think, first year in residency when I'm pulling like 24, 27 hours, like, how am I like, I can't, it's just not possible. So I started on the pill and then is the most hilarious thing. My mom, my mom's like, you don't know how you can't just be on birth control pills. You don't know anything about birth control pills. I'm like, that's literally the only medication I know anything about. (laughs) I'm a gynecologist. I don't know anything about any other pills, but this is like one pill I actually know something about, which I was floored. My mom used to be a midwife, and because I think in her mind, I always be a little girl. I'm like, that's literally the only medicine I know anything about. Yeah, I think. I mean, I had surgery twice, not not for endometriosis, for fibroids, but I, I remember feeling shameful as a patient even though I do this for a living. So I know rationally, it makes no sense, but it doesn't change how I feel emotionally. It doesn't change. It does not change how I feel in my body and what I sense in that moment. I still felt so much shame, which I know it makes no sense, but I can't somehow step out of that moment. Anyway, I'll just say that I just really want to women to know that if they're experiencing pain it's not because they did anything wrong it could be endometriosis it could be something else could be chronic pelvic pain and we often send patients to you also because sometimes they don't have endometriosis right and i think that is the topic of conversation now and everybody almost gets frustrated when i say i don't think it's endometriosis i think it's something else but endometriosis is not the only reason for your chronic pelvic pain, right? So I think that probably doesn't get enough light either. And I'm not talking about fibroids. I mean, literally, sometimes surgical intervention is not the right answer for you.
0: I always equate it to, um, you know, like even when I'm explaining, let's say, an MRI, like, like to simplify it, like like of your back to a patient. And I'm like, sure, it shows a little arthritis. It shows some disc bulges. This is irrelevant if it's not causing the pain. Like if that's not the pattern of your pain, it's irrelevant. It's there. If someone got an MRI of my back, it probably shows something too, but it doesn't mean anything if it's not causing a problem. And it's the same thing with endometriosis, where sometimes I've told patients this the same, I've told patients the same thing where um, I've been like, okay, but. The way you're describing your pain doesn't sound like endometriosis. It doesn't really sound like an organ. It kind of sounds like a nerve. Like it doesn't sound anything like that. It's going in a different place. So, you know, I'm like, I'm sure you, like, I know you have it, but I think it's there, but I don't think that's the problem. So why don't we, rather than you having surgery, because, you know, it was like a Couple of patients are considering surgery. I was like, "Why don't we try like this injection? Much very minimal, very minimal yeah. invasive. And if it helps, yeah. great. Then we've figured out what's causing this, and then you don't need to have the surgery." And so, yes, just because the test shows something doesn't mean that that's
1: the reason <laughs> for the symptoms. I think the, the the trouble is that I'm not saying you don't have pain. Like I understand you're you are in pain. I'm not in any way trying to invalidate your pain. All I'm saying in that moment is. I think it's something else. And I can understand how it can be very frustrating as a patient who finally thought they found, like, this is the reason. And sometimes when you see the doctor and they're like, that's actually not why you're having pain. And sometimes we actually don't know. Right. Which is incredibly frustrating for the patient, but I assure you, no less frustrating for the doctor. (laughs) We also... Feel so incompetent. Yeah, <laughs> I was there for myself in that moment. I'm like, well, I just don't know, and and I think that's very frustrating for us because we are helpers, right? Like, right, by nature, we want to be able to help and we want it to be X. But I think that's why it's so important for me to back up and kind of take a look at the picture and say, like, even though my robot's a hammer, but not everything is a nail. So I. I always try to really advocate for other types of therapy as well, and we always try to again do an integrative care because i I really don't want people to think that surgery is their only option
0: right, or that you know surgery is going to f- it may fix the endometriosis like it may get rid of that, but it may not help your pain like it may your pain might be there afterwards.
1: It might just be part of the answer, right? It will not be the entire answer, right? Sometimes it's not even part of the answer, but they oftentimes it's only part of the answer and not the whole answer. And we still need to leverage the other, the other pieces of our multidisciplinary care. I mean, without our help with our radiology partners who've been amazing at this, we would not be able to have gone this far, right? Because really, if it's endometriosis, the therapy is very different from when it's just chronic pelvic pain without endometriosis, because then the surgical options almost entirely off the table. And especially with advanced imaging, if we can get very clear. And what we were mentioning earlier, both well, you and I were talking about, you know, a very detailed history to understand. The pain sounds like a nerve pain, or is it persistent pain? Or does it get worse during your menstrual cycle? So, I do think that part of the puzzle is really important to get dig deeper in. And and then we can figure out, you know, with the combination of a detailed history and a very good imaging, then we can figure out what should be the next step whether it should be a medical intervention, whether it could be a nerve ablation, should it be pelvic floor first? And then Really, we would only advocate for surgical intervention if you're if those things don't really work and you're actively trying to conceive. So the hormonal option is completely off the table. Will we go that route? Right.
0: For for you, you had mentioned before that the imaging with the protocol is I think you said eighty percent. It's it's eighty percent accurate, which is just pretty fabulous because that's more accurate than <laughs> a lot of things in medicine. Right. But um, how often for you or when do you consider doing like a diagnostic laparoscopy, like where you're not actually sure if there's, you're going to see anything at all and you're just really going there to see what you see? How often do you
1: end up doing that? We don't do that. We, we strongly advocate for not that. Di- no, like, I think that's too high of a risk. And I think we we have this discussion, MRI versus ultrasound, for sure, ultrasound is cheaper. I think one of the reasons I have leaned heavily toward MRI is because precisely what you were mentioning before about pelvic floor physical therapy, like an endovaginal ultrasound can be traumatic in some of these patients, especially if they're already having a lot of pain, or sometimes it's a teenager and they're very young. They may be a virgin. So for various reasons, I we just thought standardizing the protocol to MRI is a lot more helpful. And um, we actually meet with our radiologist on a monthly basis. Obviously, we talk more often than that, but we meet and go over. So we bring the OR images and they bring the MR images and we go over interesting cases. We go over when MRI is amazingly accurate or when MRI is you know, slightly off so that we can continue to improve. And we continue to do research together and collaborate. We actually recently just started talking about, again, uh, whether or not we should, we should restart the Rectrogel. Because at one point, uh, several years ago, we were doing Rectrogel as part of the protocol all the time. And then when we went to a society of abdominal radiology meeting with a consensus of a group of radiologists for the endometriosis focus group, we decided to drop it all together. But now we're trying to like look back as, and see, was it was that the better choice? Obviously, the patients don't love Rectogel. We get that. But are there specific scenarios where it would be helpful? If the patient's coming in with, let's say, bowel symptoms, maybe we what we should do is like a mini bowel prep and then do the Rectogel, but only for selected patients. We need to really tease that out. I think we need to tease out the data to see what, in what clinical scenario, Is that clearly a slightly, well, maybe not slightly, more invasive MRI protocol, helpful and necessary?
0: For our listeners that are not in medicine, can you explain that a little more detail?
1: (laughs) Sure, sure. So for for us to try to see whether or not there's endometriosis on the bowel, uh, occasionally we would insert some gel into the rectum so we can actually see the endometriosis clearer. And the reason we do that is actually because there are times that when the endometriosis, if it's just superficial on the bowel, we kind of just shave it. Now, if the depth of invasion is more than seven millimeters, we actually need to do a resection. And if the depth of invasion is less than three millimeters, we can do shaving. Now, that means I have to know before I go in for surgery what I'm going to do. And that also gives the patient a better idea of pre-op. Right, like I have had a full conversation with you. I would have gotten my colorectal surgeon on board, Dr. Shah, who's absolutely amazing. And, but I have to know that pre-op. If in the middle of surgery I'm cutting into your colon, then I have already committed you to a bowel resection. So that's why we go through such detail. We're not trying to torture our patients. We we know that putting something in your rectum is extremely uncomfortable. But it's really important for our pre-op imaging, for our pre-op planning, so we know exactly what we're going to do in surgery. We do not want any surprises for your sake and for our sake. We, we, We want to be as prepared as we can be for your procedure so that we can have the right team of surgical partners at the time of your procedure to give you the best care possible. So we're now trying to figure out what are the right population of patients that we need to do this intervention for in terms of, you know, doing this more invasive form of MRI? When is it actually helpful? Because we don't want to do it for everyone because clearly it's not necessary in every single patient who has chronic pelvic pain, but there may be selected patients that actually will be really helpful for in terms of pre-op planning.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, In terms of surgery, you're like the queen for me, you're like the queen of robotic gynecologic surgery. So why, why did you choose that route? Like, why do you do your surgeries robotically
1: rather than laparoscopically or even open? Open is very much 1970. So we just, let's take that off the table. Uh, I think it's barbaric. <laughs> so to me, uh, for me, I feel like if there's any time that we can actually do anything minimally invasively, then we should, right? Because it leads to less bleeding, less infection, less Pain, the patient go back to work go back to their lives much much sooner so the reason i choose a robotic platform rather than laparoscopic platform is just because one it's 3d magnification um, it is 10 times magnified i just can see things much better with a robotic scope also our instruments have articulate the uh, robotic instruments have wrists. so the robotic instruments actually have seven degrees of freedom of movement whereas our human wrist only has six degrees of freedom so it can actually bend in ways our human wrists or hands cannot bend in it's more intuitive for lack of a better word so we can do very careful dissections and laparoscopic instruments is so bad our robot, the robotic surgeon called the laparoscopic surgeons straight stick surgeon so basically operating with chopstick it doesn't have a wrist it cannot bend so as you can imagine, no organ in the body has like straight edges. Everything has curved edges, right? So it doesn't make sense that you can do better with an instrument that has no joints and no wrists and no way to articulate. And it's just so, I kind of just really love it. I know <laughs> it's, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I have a lot of fun now. It's great. I I really do enjoy being in there. You do you you have <laughs> no, we a great time we've had a great time in the <laughs> art we have a great time I mean I think we we obviously take it super seriously but if you're miserable in the OR, that means that's not what you were meant to do with your life right, right absolutely like you want to be more, like happy in the in the operating room doing what they do
0: I mean if you're also if you're enjoying yourself you're automatically going to take the time that's necessary to make sure it's perfect because you want it to be. Yeah. You care to be in there. So yeah. No, my husband's the same way. He's uh training to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, but he wants to do robotic thoracic surgery. And uh he loves he loves robotic. Um he loves all like robotic surgeries. And he it's very funny because he always talks about how um like this is why he plays video games. He's like he's like he's like no I sh- I should be playing video games. Like it's uh it's for my dexterity really. Like, sure. Okay. <laughs> you're like, ah, okay. He's like, it's for my training. I need to
1: play this game. It's for it's for training. Yeah, oh my, my surgical skills will improve. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's so funny because now I, I mean, in, in in the beginning, it didn't look quite as pretty, but now I strive for surgery to look pretty. It, it's a different goal now, right? Because it's satisfying. Yeah. First, you just going to be proficient, like you know how to use the instrument your platform but now it's it's about how can we do it just incrementally better every single time we do this right
0: i mean even for me whenever i do any fluoroscopic ultrasound guided procedure you know that contrast spread or that needle placement be completely coaxial it's very satisfying i'm like to somebody take a picture i'm like that's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> so,
1: no no I'm, I'm with you i'm with you like you know economy emotion for me and like how can we make it look completely bloodless and pretty? and yeah it may not impact the outcome but, but i wanted to look that way exactly <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> now i know i'm sure you're going to say that or i would guess that you're probably going to say that you uh, are not particularly pro these procedures but you know there are the you know, pain types of procedures where they you know sever major chains of nerves like the presacral neurectomy type of procedures or run nerve ablation, like, do you, do you ever do those? Are those things that you would recommend or in, in any, any circumstances that it would be something to try?
1: No, I actually I never do them. I, I very much are about preserving nerves. I feel like there's no reason for us to ever sever nerves. I don't see how that can be really helpful. It, it definitely, we, we always do nerve preserving surgery. We would never intentionally cut anyone's nerves. I don't we have not seen studies that show that that would be a helpful intervention for the endometriosis patients. I think anecdotally, we have heard that, but it has not been shown in large scale studies right that's that's what I was um that's what I've heard about it as well, but
0: because I don't ever do that, thought I would have <laughs> have someone who is closer to it than I would be yes. as far as surgery goes, and then, you know. Have there been any recent, like, new treatments or discoveries that have advanced the field of endometriosis? Or if there haven't, like, what might be coming up or you hope to see in the
1: future? I would really love to see a medical treatment that doesn't involve hormones. I feel like that's a bit of a pipe dream because it's a hormone, like, it is endometriosis is a hormone responsive condition. So I think it might be challenging to, to, accomplish that but it doesn't mean it's not possible. I know that there's a startup in San Francisco working on maybe saliva testing saliva for patients with endometriosis so that it could be a first line screening test rather than obviously that seems a lot cheaper and a lot
0: faster
1: than MRI. I think they're still in the development phase. So I don't know if we have any conclusion on that. I don't believe they're FDA approved yet. So, there are some stuff coming out, and what we're working on at AAGL, so that's American Association of Gynecologic Laparoscopists, we're working on a new staging system for endometriosis. I think you probably already know this, and I think many patients know this, that the stage of endometriosis doesn't correlate with the degree of pain. So, we're just trying to understand is there a better staging mechanism for endometriosis that perhaps will be more predictive either of fertility and or of pain. So we're figuring that out. That is many years in the working. So that's one thing that I feel like that would be probably more helpful and more informational for patients than to be told that, well, you have stage four disease, but sometimes you have no pain. So I think that staging hasn't been super, super helpful. So we'll see how that goes. And the new staging system, I find it to be much more beneficial to both the patients and the physicians. So we're still figuring out the rest of it, but it's, you know, it's something that we've been working on for a long time. The other thing I get really frustrated about is that, I mean, I'm a salary physician, so I, I think this is important because many of the endometriosis surgeons, because they don't get reimbursed well, have now gone to private practice. And I think that's unfortunate because then it precludes patients who can't afford extremely expensive surgical interventions from these experts. And, and it really because I feel like there is quite a bit of gender discrimination in reimbursement. So female surgery, any sort of health care as it relates to female is just reimbursed way less than than anything related to males. So for example, I believe a prostate, a removal of prostate is three times our view of removal of a uterus, right? So to me, that's that doesn't seem fair at all. It could, it should at least be comparable, right? For it to be a three time difference, it seems. Anyway, so I think it really would encourage more skillful surgeons to be in this field and just for gender equality's sake, I feel like we should at least be reimbursed the same for hysterectomy versus prostate.
0: It, actually, it's funny you said that because um, our on this podcast, our very first episode, like this is now season three, but season one, episode one, um, was literally called Hysterical Women. Um, and it was like a history of chronic pain in women and talking about hysteria and the word meaning uterus And we talked about reimbursement in a part of the episode. um, And we also talked about publications, like number of studies published on female sexual dysfunction versus male sexual dysfunction. And it was crazy. It was like 20 times more on male sexual dysfunction. And the same thing, it was, it was three times more um, reimbursement for urologic surgeries than gynecologic surgeries. And that would, that limited access to healthcare for a lot of, women patients and it's insane it's like it's, it's absolutely absolutely this is what the society is telling you what
1: you're worth exactly right? exactly they're telling you you're only worth a third of a man basically i
0: mean even even pain studies so like till um until 2000 actually currently 80 percent of pain studies are done on male subjects not female subjects and until 2016 overall for any studies like no one had to justify if they were using a male versus a female and so they primarily used male subjects because then that could in 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 pain studies because using female subjects was too complicated because every because they they would have to account for um menstruation for you know premenstruation menstruation menstruation, pregnancy menopause hormonal changes all those things change your pain levels and so they weren't really able to get accurate data and so they would just eliminate female subjects entirely and develop all the treatments based on men and so all of these things have led to just women's health being so far behind men's health but that's i feel like like probably another hour discussion in itself but (laughs) but you know it's very frustrating for me for me as well because it's the same thing there's limits in terms of studies reimbursement all of that for um pain physicians
1: as well yeah so it's an intervention if it's you know geared toward men won't be as effective in women, right? Just exactly. a simple, exactly. technology and biology is just simply different. Like we can't pretend that we're the same. So anyway, I mean that that's something that I occasionally get frustrated about. It's not something I often talk about, but I do think it really limits the amount of research dollars devoted to women's health, limits the amount of attention we give to women's health, and I feel like it's a way for society to tell women that we're not worth as much. I agree. It is. It's, it's incredibly
0: frustrating because um, when I feel every time I get asked questions from patients on things like endometriosis or fibromyalgia, um, or, or any questions that are like, why don't we have more? And I'm like, well, <laughs> because no one's bothering to do it because it doesn't reimburse. And So we have limited options because it just isn't research done on this because for a long time, it was just um, assumed that women were crazy if they were complaining of pain. Like, you know, if a woman generally complains of pelvic pain, I'm not saying this is everywhere, but in a lot of places, um, it's kind of like, you're fine, like relax. But if a man complains of pelvic pain, it would be like a battery of tests to figure out like, oh my God, what's wrong. And so, (laughs) and for women, it's like 15 years of, pelvic pain before you're like, maybe maybe something's wrong. Maybe that's not normal, quote unquote normal.
1: I mean, this is not funny, but like um, today I was in the OR and I was being bumped uh, for, this is an actual conversation. So I went into the operating room to help one of my colleagues and she was saying that, oh, there's a patient that has ovary torsion, but she's comfortable. So she didn't want to, you know, necessarily bump the next surgeon, right? Because the patient was, Seem to be stable, and then immediately someone else in our room was like, "Oh, but if it's a testicular torsion, everyone's getting bumped." <laughs> and then I literally go back into my room and I was like, "Hey, how come my patient's not here yet?" They're like, "Oh, this is a testicular torsion. That's why we can't open." Like I was literally being bumped for testicular torsion as I was trying to figure out, like, why isn't the ovarian torsion going now? I was being bumped for testicular torsion, so of course. Even in an emergency situation, the testicular torsion was still taking
0: precedence for an ovarian torsion, which is going to be the it's yeah. the, piece of the same conclusion, like loss of fertility, just as a man versus a woman. Like there was no question. And it's not like, oh, there's one testicle and two ovaries, so you have a spare.
1: No, it's, it's equal. It's completely right. equal. Like the second someone said testicular torsion, no one asked, well, is the patient in pain? does he needs surgery now? It was at reflex. We obviously need to make all shit, like all, we need to clear the path with this testicular torsion. And meanwhile, the ovarian torsion patient, people are like, well, does she need to go right now? She's been here for a long time. Is she stable? How much pain is she in? Who cares? I don't mean who cares. Like we obviously care. I mean, like, how come there's so many follow-up questions to the ovarian torsion when they were, nobody asked. Is the testicular torsion patient stable? Nobody asked that. Immediately, all wheels went off and we needed to like bump whoever we needed to bump, the first one possible for the testicular torsion patient. Even though our rule is always, you should bump your own service, right? Like there's a torsion should have bumped me, the testicular torsion should have bumped, whatever. My point was simply like, over in torsion, everybody had like 20 million questions about why does this patient need to go now? And testicular torsion, nobody asked anything. It just obviously, obviously needs to go immediately and we're bumping whoever we need to bump. And I was like, wow, that is. And and even even us, like even the females, right, right, we, it almost feel like we were also in on it. Like nobody asked, like no one asked. Right. Is a testicular torsion, patient in pain? Zero percent. Everyone just went into action. And I was like, Wow.
0: We're conditioned too. We're like conditioned in a lot of ways to just accept it, and yeah, accept it as the norm. Like you know, because it is a norm. Yeah. So just accept it as, and no one asks the follow up questions. No. And then it's it's later. It's like maybe like an hour later that you're like, wait a minute, why did
1: why did we do that? That's exactly what happened. I was like, wait, how come nobody asked? Like you know, we didn't ask if the testicular torsion patient was in pain. We, we asked a lot of questions about the ovarian torsion patient, but we, none of us asked, was a testicular torsion patient stable? Is this, can this surgery wait? Nobody. It was only like midway through my surgery when I was like, hold on a minute. <laughs> How come nobody asked that? <laughs> An hour later, <laughs> wait. <laughs> I know, so it definitely like, we ha- after we have already mobilized everything to happen, right? Like this is already, like decision has been made. Testicular torsion patient is already on the table. And I'm like, hold on. I, I And I went along with it, right? Not right. just me. Like, we all went along with it. Because apparently, even in our mind, because we've been so conditioned, uh, even to the gynecologist, testicular children somehow seemed unquestionable was the bigger emergency. And that's really, really bad. I'm just, I was like, oh, well, now I'm ashamed of myself for like, not asking any questions. <laughs>
0: I mean, honestly, I think, I think most women physicians have felt that way at some point where you're guilty of, um, not questioning something because for such a long time that you were trained to think it's normal, that, that you, you don't question it. And then you question it later and you're like, why didn't I do anything about that? Yeah. Because you didn't think about it at the time and it's, it's slowly changing, but it's so slow. Yeah. The attitudes for all of us are so slow change and it's not really fully going to change until things like reimbursement change when you make it more worth people's time to invest in doing research or surgery um procedures medicines whatever for women driven health until then you're not going to change the attitude towards it because it's still seen as beneath beneath compared to like male men's health
1: even with the pelvic MRI for endometriosis, it was a struggle. Like a lot of MRIs, like at our institution, we are very, very lucky. But a lot of places struggle because the insurance doesn't approve it. They simply deny it and say, why do you need an MRI? You can just get an ultrasound. But we know that the ultrasound, it's not only in very selected hands would it pick up endometrials. Very, very selected hands. And most ultrasounds will be normal. We have seen so many, so many normal ultrasounds with abnormal MRI. So a lot of our patients. Again, we are so, so lucky to have our radiology colleagues. But I know that my colleagues across the nation, many are not able to get insurance covered for their patients getting MRI. Not just in this country. My international colleagues often have trouble too. So again, this is another reason, right? Because the Insurance companies won't approve it because there is no reimbursement. That means the women have to pay out of pocket to get a diagnostic test. And I think that's just really unfortunate and really unfair. And until we can push through all these policy changes and the minds of our the people who are making these decisions, literally, like we'll make little headway, right? Because little is going to change if we still, like I'm talking about how amazing the MRI is, but most people can't even get it. assuming you can get it. Yeah, most people can't even get it. And that's really unfortunate. I feel like I do spend a lot of my time um, doing peer-to-peer
0: type of interactions to reverse decisions. And I've been kind of keeping a track of it um, just to, just out of curiosity, really, to see like what types of decisions I've been trying to overturn, and um, like ninety percent of them have been something for a woman patient, like some some sort of MRI or nerve block or something. And I probably would say that I have kind of equal as far as male patients and female patients, but all of the times I'm doing all these arguments, it's pretty much almost always women patients.
1: And then it's so, and, and I bet you're not that surprised at that finding. <laughs> no, no. I
0: almost expect it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and it's, and I I'll always, I never find myself telling male patients that, you know, I'm going to try to get this approved. Um, I may need to, it may take a little while, may have to do a few extra steps to get it approved. I feel like I, some, I feel like I much more often say that to female patients for a therapy I'm recommending than I do for male patients, like, like nine to one, <laughs> because I just expect that it's going to get approved and it's going to be fine. Um, when it comes to male patients,
1: but
0: let's end on a more positive note. Um, but regardless, <laughs> I feel like we did cover quite a bit. This is what actually I had a really interesting question because, but this is what I, that's what we like on this podcast because that's why it's about women's health because there are all these issues that are external to just oh, what medication? What surgery? What procedure? Like it's it's separate from that. That are kind of an overlying arch to a lot of the conditions that women face. But you know, I do think with endometriosis, it's difficult. But hopefully, times are slowly changing. There are amazing physicians like you that are working on it, that are working with these patients and developing protocols, which is amazing. Um, so, going to end with asking you. If you have any kind of final thoughts for our listeners, that a lot of them are patients and a lot of them probably have endometriosis, any final thoughts for those patients in terms of how they can kind of
1: take control of their own health? My one message has always been pain is not normal. And so if you're experiencing any pain, you need to voice that to your physician. And if your physician is not hearing you, then you need to find someone. Else, that hears that message, and that has always been my one message: that pain is not normal because it isn't. And I don't think we should be told that we should just deal with it, or that we're crazy, or that we're just being hysterical. That the message is just that pain is not normal, and speak out. Totally
0: agree. So <laughs> I'm a pain doctor. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much for joining us, Kathy. And this, this is a truly fantastic discussion. And I do hope that our listeners gained a lot from this, uh, both in terms of the medical aspect, but also just in terms of the sort of life aspect, because it has been really interesting and it is very real. And these are things that we as physicians deal with a lot. That's sort of the, the um, behind the scenes. A lot of the time that we don't have a chance ourselves to kind of talk through it, um vent through it <laughs> a lot of the time with these conditions, because these are battles that we also face when we're trying to help our patients just like they're trying to also get help in the first place
1: yeah it's a complex ecosystem and you know we just need to work together thank you for having me this was great
0: absolutely thank you again and then to our listeners join us uh, next week to continue our discussion we would love to hear your thoughts Visit our Instagram at The Female Pain Docs for more content. Send us an email at The Female Pain Docs at Gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.